And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. And they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him, and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drank, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, We are able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drank you will drink, and with the baptism with which I am baptized you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten heard it, they, were, they began to be indignant at James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. The word of the Lord. Thank you, Spencer. Um, Shall we pray? Gracious Heavenly Father, we come to you today. And Father, we um, know that you are a good and sovereign God. Lord, and we confess that um, even though we uh, pay homage of how great you are, you control the planets and the stars. You hold the earth in your hand. You move the hearts of kings like water through your fingers, Father. We confess that we grow troubled and anxious and we worry. We worry for the events that are happening in our country. We worry for the natural disasters we fear for our friends and our family, for our loved ones ourselves. We run through a litany of what-ifs and why-won'ts and aren't you going to. We worry because we're consumed with um, knowing and being in control. But Father, we confess that that we are weak and you are strong and how much we need you to be able to cast all our cares on you to be able to throw our cares with reckless abandons at the feet of our good and sovereign Savior. Father, today we um, turn to you uh, as uh, Isaias' storm is um, tracking off our coast, and Father, as Floridians, uh, often tropical storms, we yawn, but we realize the power of nature. We pray for those that are in her his path right now in the Dominican Republic, in uh, Cuba, the Bahamas, Lord, that you would protect them and, and, and uh, preserve them. And Father, we realize in times like this how little control we have. 
Father, we thank you for your working and your movement in the hearts of our congregation. Father, we lift up right now Karen New, Melissa Brogdon's mother, to you. We thank you for her faith. We thank you for her gratitude. We thank you for her mindset that she will give you praise in the midst of disappointments and pain and and weakness, Lord. We thank you that you are strong and you are good. And I pray for Melissa and our sister Amy, Lord, as they love her well. Lord, what a blessing they are to their mother, and I pray that you would strengthen her, or strengthen them through their love and their service and their self-sacrifice, that you may be honored and glorified in their home. Father, I thank you for your promises that we cling to in times of difficulty and times of trouble. We need you every hour, most precious Savior. And we come to you today that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that love through your word as we hear the voice of Jesus through the pen of Mark. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Amen. We continue in the uh, book of Mark, uh, the tenth, uh, the chapter 10. We are nearing uh, the end of Mark chapter 10, and we've been seeing how much Jesus is laying out what it means to be a follower of Jesus, and what it means to follow him with childlike faith and trust, not on our own terms, but on the terms of Jesus. Today, we turn our attention to the third of Jesus' predictions of his death, uh, what's going to happen, and then uh, his self-sacrificial death on Calvary, and then the response of the disciples after Jesus has told them that he is going to die. How did they respond? May we sit at your right hand and your left hand. Um, Often, uh, people's expectations are not in line with reality. How many times in your life have you signed up for something uh, that you thought it would be really easy and it would be really, uh, you signed up maybe at your kid's school and you said, wow, this looks like it'd be really easy and a lot of time or an effort, only to realize this is much greater and much bigger than I thought it would be. Sometimes our expectations don't match the reality. Sometimes we come in with one expectation and another person comes in with another expectation and we are working against each other, though we're supposed to be working with one another. And we find this very quickly as we read through the book of Mark. The disciples had one set of expectations and Jesus had a very different radical set of expectations of what his father was and these bumbling misfit disciples of Jesus time and time again opened their mouth and inserted their foot and Jesus very graciously and very lovingly corrected their false expectations. And what I want to do is, and I pray that as we have gone through the book of Mark, that Jesus, in, uh, through the pen of Mark and through the, the uh, lens of Mark, would be able to it, uh, teach us what it means to follow Jesus and what it means what to have biblical expectations of that. So this morning what I want to do is I want to give you my big idea uh, as we come in for this section is simply this. All who follow Jesus 
must live and die by the pattern of the cross. All who follow Jesus must live and die by the pattern of the cross. And what is the pattern of the cross? How do we uh, live and die by this pattern? Well, the pattern is this. Self-sacrificially love others, and as we will see, as Jesus has loved us, and then humbly serve one another, humbly serve others, and again, how Jesus has served us. So again, our big idea this morning is all who follow Jesus must live and die by the pattern of the cross, by self-sacrificially loving others, and humbly serving others. So let's take a look at how we are to self-sacrificially love others as Jesus has loved us. Notice uh, the beginning of verse 32. And they, uh, the disciples, and we probably, uh, this is the larger group of disciples, not simply the twelve, but his uh, posse, if you will, his group of of disciples that were following him, maybe some of the crowds that were mingled through, some of the religious leaders, maybe they had a scout there to make sure, uh, find, find out what Jesus was doing. And Jesus was there. And they were going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem. We see in the beginning of Mark, Jesus has laid forth what he will do. And then with the end of Mark, we see what Jesus does in laying down his life. In this middle section, Jesus is walking and going towards Jerusalem. His eye never deviates and his focus is never deterred. Jesus is going to the city of his forefather David to be crowned as king. However, this coronation will not meet the expectations of first century Jews nor his disciples who were saying, we are ready to to proclaim this king who will bring us victory from our oppressors and who will bring peace to the land. It's not a coronation they're expecting because the coronation will take place on a cross, not on a throne where his father David once sat. And it will be beside two common criminals, not between dignitaries and heads of state. Jesus' coronation will not fit the expectations of anyone uh, in the first century. However, Jesus has his focus and his gaze locked on Jerusalem, the city of David. Rather than avoiding this inevitable fate that he knows is coming or delaying the inevitable, he methodically makes his way up the 3,500-foot climb from, uh, the, from the rest of, uh, of Israel to Jerusalem to the place where he will die for the sins of his people. One commentator said, Jesus is fulfilling the promises of Isaiah 35, verse 10. Notice uh, it says this, The ransom of the Lord shall return and come to Zion, Jerusalem, the city of David, the city of God, with singing. Everlasting joy shall be on their heads. They shall obtain gladness and joy, and sorrow and singing shall flee away. 
Jesus is leading this ragtag group of disciples to the city of David, to the city of Zion, and his death will be the long-awaited apocalyptic victory of God's appointed deliverer. Yet rather than entering the city as a triumphant military deliverer, he will enter as a humble servant who will humbly give his life for his people. Why? because he loves them. Notice the response of those that were following with Jesus midway through verse 32. And Jesus, they, Jesus' disciples, were amazed. And those who were following were afraid. This group of, of believers, of disciples that are following Jesus are responding to this this climb to Jerusalem with mixed emotions. Some were amazed as they watch Jesus boldly and confidently pursue his and the people's destiny of bringing joy and peace and ushering the kingdom of God. But then also we notice some were afraid. And we're never told why they're afraid, but we can infer from what's going on already. It says there is a growing suspicion among the disciples of Jesus that things might not happen in Jerusalem the way they're expecting, and that rather than being embraced, there will be persecution and suffering, because Jesus keeps talking about this persecution and suffering that he's going to die. And in John chapter 11, when Jesus talks about going back to Bethany along this, this long and winding road that leads to Jerusalem, the disciples, Thomas especially, throws up his hands and says, they're trying to kill you. Finally, we'll go with you. But there's this growing fear that something is not right and that they may not be accepted the way their expectations anticipate. But notice what Jesus does not do is he does not try to assuade their fear or stoke their delusions of grandeur for how they'll be received. His words are forthright and they're blunt. Yet, as James and John will we'll quickly see, they're not listening at all to what Jesus is saying. How often are we like James and John as we read through the accounts of Jesus and read through his words? Though we're reading and though we think we're listening, we're not actually listening because we just want Jesus to do what we want Jesus to do. Notice at the end of verse 32, and it says, And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, We're going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will arise. This is not what they were expecting. The coronation of Jesus will not be a peaceful transfer of power, but a humiliating death for Jesus, the anointed Son of God. He's going to be delivered over to the wills and to the whims of the religious powers. He will be condemned and executed by heartless oppressors. He will be humiliated and tortured and executed, not as a royal dignitary, but as a common criminal Uh, And then, however, despite this humiliation, despite their expectations crashing against the rocks, it says God will raise him up. Another thing 
that they weren't expecting. Such words were unthinkable to the disciples because they had expectations. None of their expectations were for a suffering king. They simply could not comprehend a suffering Savior. Jesus was not only uh, waiting uh, for Jerusalem uh, and walking to Jerusalem, but he embraced the sacrifice. Why? Why did he go to, to Jerusalem? Why did he embrace the cross? To save his people from their bondage to sin and to death. Notice verse 45. This, the answer sort of to these verses is unlocked at the end. Mark uh, puts this flourish on the end. And it's really the crowning thesis of the book of Mark. Notice verse 45, it says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came and his expectation was to incarnate himself, the Word becoming flesh. But he came here to be able to pay the ransom price for our freedom. Now, when we hear the ransom price, it's not um, familiar verbiage for us 21st century ears, but in times and cultures where slavery was practiced and commonplace, this was a common word. To pay the ransom, to post the bail payment, if you will, for captured soldiers or slaves that had been um, brought into uh, slavery, or, and then also for people who had to sell themselves into slavery, to pay the ransom would be to pay the bondage price to get them out of their bondage and to release them for their bondage. So uh, Mark 10.45 tells us that Jesus did not come for adoration and glory and all the, to be served by his creation. In fact, it was the antithesis of this that Jesus, the king of creation, came to serve his creation. And how did he do that? Giving us our best life now, delivering us from pain, giving us comfort. No, no, and no. He came to be able to pay the ransom price for our sin. But what is the ransom price? We teach our children in the book of Awana, Romans 6.23, and just, it's very basic, for the wages of sin, for the deserved result of sin, what sin has earned us, is what? Death. The only way that mankind can be set free and for the ransom price to be paid is a substitute sacrifice must be made. Somebody must die in the place of a people whose sin has caused them spiritual death and condemnation. That sacrifice must be paid. And Jesus came not to be served but to serve his people by paying that ransom price. All of the world's religions try to take care of the problem of sin. How can we be right with God? And there's different varieties and flavors and names, but typically, on the whole, there are things that we must do to try to assuage or make up or find balance to our problem of evil and sin in the world. What makes Christianity unique is that it is not us that provide the uh, 
atoning sacrifice to be able to make peace with God. It's actually God who pays the ransom price. God wrote himself into the story of history in the person of Jesus Christ to be able to save his people, his image bearers, who were hopelessly drowned in their sin. J.C. Ryle puts it this way. He says, let us mark this well. There was nothing involuntary or unforeseen in our Lord's death. It was the result of his own free, determinate, deliberate choice. From the beginning of his earthly ministry to um, he saw the cross before him and he went to it as a willing sufferer. He knew that his death was the needful payment that must be made to reconcile, bring back together, bring peace between God and man. That payment had to be covenanted, promised, and engaged to make at the price of what? His own blood. And so when the appointed time came, like a faithful surety, he kept his word and he died for our sins on Calvary. Ocean Park, we see that the pattern of the cross is self-sacrificial love. It's self-sacrificial and it's suffering on the behalf of somebody else. Suffering, uh, there are many religions and traditions in this world that say we need to suffer. But suffering, according to the gospel, is not the end in, uh, in and of itself. We don't have benefit because we're suffering. Well, you've suffered more, so you get to sit a little closer to Jesus in heaven. But we suffer to be able to... Um, Meaningful suffering is one that self suffers suffering and self-sacrifice to be able to save somebody else. It's not suffering for the sake of suffering, but it's suffering to be able to benefit and help one another. The cross is the ultimate picture of this kind of love that Christ has given to us. Because at the heart of genuine biblical love, is self-sacrifice. Only love can give of itself to benefit another. Let me give you an illustration. Your children. Um, When you have children, they come out of the womb completely dependent upon you. The first few years of your life, it's simply keeping them alive. And you have to feed them and change them and, uh, and take care of them at all moments, at all the time. You have to sacrifice yourself. Uh, you have to sacrifice your time, your money, your freedom, your sleep, and your energy to simply keep them alive. They do nothing to help you. Uh, they probably at times make things worse. Um, But you have to do that. You have to sacrifice your sleep in the middle of the night to be able to feed them. You have to sacrifice your freedom to care for them and your money to clothe them and educate them. You have to sacrifice your interests for their interests. For example, you can read Pat the Bunny over thousands of times to teach them things, and you read them things that you just, I'm losing my mind if I have to read this book one more time. But what you're doing, you're sacrificing your own um, uh, joy reading for the sake of your children's intellectual development so they can grow and learn about this world. 
Why do you do that? Why do we sacrifice self-sacrifice for our children? Because we love them and we pour ourselves out so our children can grow to be, um, grow physically and emotionally and spiritually. Either you suffer temporarily as a parent in a redemptive way to be able to strengthen and grow your children, or you're very stingy and selfish, and what happens? Your children are negatively and traumatically affected in a wasteful and a destructive way for the rest of your life. So genuine love is self-sacrificial that says, I love my child so much, I will sacrifice myself for the betterment of my children, to teach them and love them and cause them to thrive and to uh, flourish, because genuine love is self-sacrificial. Think of anyone in your life that has had a profound impact on your life. Crosby uh, is starting school in a few weeks, and we went and we, there is a kindergarten teacher that um, gave a testimony at her school, and she said, when I was in the third grade, I could not read at all. Not a lick. And she said, there was a teacher that discovered the fact that I couldn't read and took her time after school with patience when all the other children had left and when she could have gone home, she taught me how to read. And that time enabled me to become, to grow and flourish and get ahead. And now she's a kindergarten teacher sacrificing herself to teach 18 little uh, uh, children how to read and grow in, in herself and returning that. This is self-sacrifice. This is what genuine love is. The kingdom of God, the pattern of the cross is, um, the kingdom of God is filled with cross-bearing men and women who love self-sacrificially. You cannot follow Jesus and not love self-sacrificially and be stingy and self-centered and prideful. It is the antithesis to who Jesus is and you cannot follow him with such an attitude. But we also don't love on our own terms. It's easy to love the beautiful and the intelligent and the mature and the friendly and people who make wise choices. But we're called as kingdom citizens to love the wounded and the hurting, the quirky, the ugly, the simple, the immature, the people who make terrible choices, the difficult and the obnoxious. Ocean Park, must we love, uh, may we love like Jesus and love others the way Jesus has loved us. If it cost Jesus his, his life and he drunk the cup of the wrath of God on our behalf, why can't we sacrifice our time and our money and our comfort to love the people Christ has brought into our lives? I pray that you would be loved self-sacrificially like Jesus has loved. Because all, whoops, don't, because all who follow Jesus must live and die by the pattern of the cross. Not only are we called to love self-sacrificially, but we're also called to humbly serve one another. 
When I was a kid, I remember thinking what it would be like if I were to be there when Jesus was uh, alive, to hear him teach firsthand while I was sitting on the grassy knoll on the side of the Sea of Galilee, to eat the bread and the fish with the 5,000, to see the, the leftovers that were there, to hear the rejoicing when the sick were healed and the, and the dead were raised. It would absolutely be incredible. But I can naively say that um, I used to think that I wouldn't make the, the mistakes of the disciples. I wouldn't be like them. Uh, I wouldn't say silly things or do impulsive things or act selfishly. Uh, but I learned that I give myself far too many credit, and my children can tell you, um, I would have been just like the disciples, and I know that I would have been just like the disciples. And these next verse are a perfect example of how disciples were ordinary people who struggled with their own false assumptions and their selfishnesses and their sin. Jesus is about to um, die for their sins and for the world uh, to redeem them and ransom them for sin, and they were just concerned about procuring power and influence in a place of honor for themselves. The moment was completely missed on Peter and James, and the other disciples were annoyed with Peter and James, probably because they got to Jesus first with the request. Notice verses 37 through 35 through 37. And James and John, the son of Zebedee, came up to him and said, Teacher, we, would, we want you to do for us whatever we ask. That's a big ask, to go up to Jesus. We want you to do whatever we ask of you. That takes huxpah. And then he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And he said to them, Grant us to sit at your right hand and one at your left hand. If Jesus was about to establish his kingdom in Jerusalem, he's going to need a vice president and a, uh, and a secretary of state. They wanted to get their fair share of the pork in Jesus' administration. They had a fundamental problem, though, is that they pictured Jesus' new kingdom on the same terms as their earthly kingdoms that Jesus was about to replace pork-bellied politics and nepotism. They wanted in the ground floor. And they would have said, let's drain the swamp. And like our, our current politicians, they drain the swamp every November and fill it back up with the same wretched creatures, just different suits and different colors that they wear. They wanted power and honor as elites in Christ's kingdom. They wanted to be empowered so they could impose their will on somebody else rather than somebody imposing their will on them. They wanted Jesus to give them a kingdom where they were supreme and where they could tell people what to do. The irony of their request is they wanted a seat of honor in a kingdom that was coronated in weakness and defeat and shame. Because remember, Jesus is going to Jerusalem to be coronated as king in the line of David, the eternal king. But not at the palace. He'll be, uh, he'll be lifted up on a hillside outside the cross, the place of the skull. There were two men on his right and his left, and they were crucified common criminals. 
Jesus' royal raiment was simply a crown of thorns as he died naked, nailed to the cross. They had no idea what they're asking for. And quite honestly, in hindsight, as we read, their ignorance was shocking. And Jesus said to them in verse 38 through 40, you have no idea what you're asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I'm to drink and be baptized with the baptism that I'm going to be baptized? And they said to him, yeah, yeah, we're, we're, we're able. We're, we're able to do that. They had absolutely no clue of what they're asking for. Their expectations were so self-centered and so focused on their pride and their power and their comfort that they doubled down on their request. They realized, you know, Jesus has said there might be some difficulties, there might be some red tape that we have to break through, there might be some hardships, but you know what? We're willing to do that so we can have a place of honor, so we can have a really uh, near the Oval Office uh, back in Jerusalem when Jesus sets it up. We want to make, make sure our office is adjoining to that. They were willing to follow Jesus and suffer for Jesus to get what they really wanted, and that was power and that was glory. Ocean Park, John and James, uh, James and John's attitude is far too often the same attitude we have towards Jesus. We'll follow Jesus and do what he says if we get what we really want. We want to be happy, and we want to be healthy, and we want to be comfortable, so we'll follow Jesus for those things and ask him to kick those things over to us when we need them. We want glory and we want honor and we want praise, so we'll find a church where we can find them. Yet when things get difficult or you find a church where there's conflict, I know there's no conflict at our church ever, so you know all the other churches that are out there, wink, wink, nod, nod, that's very tongue-in-cheek for anybody, any visitors. We either leave for greener pastures of another church or what do we do? We destroy the person who is a threat to our honor, our power, our position, or our comfort within the church. But we don't do it in nasty ways. We do it in nice churchy ways. We need to pray for Sister Barbara. She's just struggling with sin. Or we do all these things that we do. All in the name of Jesus. A false Jesus who we come to to give us what we really want. And that's to be able to have power and influence and comfort, not because we desire for God and peace with God, because in his presence there is fullness of joy. Far too often we prefer to bear a grudge against our brothers and sisters than to bear up the cross of Jesus and follow him with self-sacrificial love and self-sacrificial service. Notice verses 39 through 40. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism which I'm going to be baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right and my left is not mine to grant, but is for those whom it has been prepared. Jesus speaks of the cup that he's about to drink, and that's the allotted full wrath of God that he will drink to save his people. And the baptism that he will... Um, uh, undergo is solidarity with sinners and his willingness to bear their judgment to set them free, to pay that ransom price. The disciples and you and I simply cannot do this. We cannot save ourselves as we see earlier. Only the anointed Son of God is able to save us. But we will. 
We will not drink the cup that Jesus has drunk or the baptism that Jesus experiences, but we will um, experience a similar cup of suffering and a, a, a similar baptism in solidarity with the sufferings of Jesus. Not a suffering that we can accrue future glory. Not a suffering that is disclosed ahead of time and we're approved up. I will approve of that suffering, Jesus, but no more than that. Instead, suffering that unites us to Jesus and separates us from this world in ways, uh, uh, separates from the ways and the comforts of this world. Only when his disciples are prepared to suffer with Jesus will they be able to let go of this world and free themselves of the bondage of the ways of this world. And notice verse 42, Jesus called to them and said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. Jesus calls them to himself and uh, tells them that the rulers of this world try to seek power by dominance, we hear about the peace of Rome, the Pax Romana of the first century. That was attained by f- sheer force and brutal um, force of the Romans that anything that threatened a peace would be crushed. We're beginning to see things like that in China now. And Jesus calls and explains that the heart of his kingdom, the pattern of the cross, is service. He explains that the rulers of this world are ruled by dominance and by a heavy hand that uses power and and position to get what they want. Very similar to what we call the presidency, Teddy Roosevelt dubbed it the bully pulpit, because the president is able to use his power and his influence to get Congress to do what he wants. Most people try to influence society that way. We try to overpower people to make them and force them to do what what, what we want. We try to influence society by power and control. Why? Because if I have the power and if I have the wealth and I have the connections, I can get what I really want. I'm able to get in the room where it happens, as Aaron Burr so eloquently said on Hamilton, then I can make sure to see how the sausage is made. Uh, I can gain power and influence and control for myself. Yet this is not how the kingdom of God is. Notice in verse 43 and verse 44, but it shall not be so among you, among my disciples, among my kingdom. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. Whoever would be first must be slave of all. Disciples of Jesus are not to gain influence by power and control. But you ask the question, why? Because power and control, we cannot change hearts. The Spanish conquistadors came into North America and came to the Native Americans and put a gun to their head and said, would you like to follow Jesus? And the first guy said, no. They shot him in the head. They get to the second guy. Would you like to follow Jesus? Yes. How do I sign up? But that doesn't change people's hearts. For example, when your kids fight, I know Nehemiah and Eliah never fight, but other kids who do, sometimes what our parents will say, well, say you're sorry to each other. And what do they do? They go up, sorry, I'm sorry. 
And what they really probably is saying is, I'm not sorry, and I want to take a crayon and stick it in your ear right now, but mommy and daddy are watching, and I would get in more trouble, so all I'm going to say is I'm sorry. Hearts are not changed by force. Ocean Park, the preeminent virtue of God's kingdom is not power, it's not even freedom, but it's service. Service is love made tangible. Melissa and Amy love their mother, and so they go out of their way to serve their mother. Anna, would you bring me page five of my notes? Anna, or Amy and Melissa love their mother, so they serve their mother. They, they do that because uh, Karen has loved them well, and they in turn want to love their mother well. And that's the paradigm of the kingdom, that we love somebody to influence them uh, and not to force them into it. And so this paradigm of the kingdom is not a noble ruler or a powerful warrior, but a servant, even a slave. And when people heard this, this was nearly as ridiculous as a camel going out through the eye of a needle. Jesus is calling us and his disciples to love so self-sacrificially that the world cannot imagine what life without us and a world would like us would be like. In Jeremiah 29, 5-7, um, Jeremiah gives this prophecy in this very vein of what Jesus is teaching. While they're in captivity, it says, build houses and live in them. Plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may bear sons and multiply them and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Brothers and sisters, when you serve others, genuinely seek their good. They will, and after a long time, they will begin to look at you and differently because of the attractiveness of your love and of your service. It will be then when we will have a real influence in the world. When we don't follow the politics and the uh, ugliness and the power-hungry glory mongers, of our society, but we genuinely, lovingly seek to humbly serve our neighbors and our friends and our family. Ocean Park, it is, this is where the example of the cross is so vital. Jesus, the King of Heaven, became a servant. He did not demand his own rights, his honor and his due. He joyfully embraced humble service and we see it so eloquently put in verse 45, so that his people would benefit to pay the ransom and redeem them from their sin. And this is the pattern of the cross. If the cross of Christ was sufficient, brothers and sisters, to bring you to God, and it has, it is sufficient. There's nothing more that we need to do. If the cross of Christ was the perfect substitutionary sacrifice, and it was, if my debt of sin has been paid in full, 
and it has if everything we need to follow is in found in Christ, and it is, and if Jesus loves me despite my weakness, my limitations, my sin, and he most certainly does. If this is true, I am freed from the duty of having to do good to save myself, and now I can serve others because I want to serve Christ, how Christ has saved and served me. The life of service is not for, um, so we can win heavenly brownie points or improve on our merit or assuage our guilt. The life of service is a way to follow the pattern of the cross which our master has set at, as he went to Jerusalem. We are to live as humble servants because the sole function of a servant is to give um, and to be able to love others. Only when we learn to live as servants we'll be able to experience the heart of the kingdom because all who follow Jesus must live and die by the pattern of the cross, by self-sacrificially loving others and humbly serving others. Shall we pray? Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for who you are and what you have done. You have loved us so well, and you have paid the ransom for our sin, a price that we could never pay, because salvation is impossible with man, but all things are possible with God. Father, we love you, we trust you, and we thank you. In Christ's precious and holy name we pray. Amen.